Now there is a story in the Bible which happened sometime around 580 BC. That's 580 years before the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was just a few years after King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded the city of Jerusalem. He killed many people, many women and children. It was a human genocide. And the rest of the people he carried off as slaves back to Babylon. Just a few years before, just a few years after that event, God showed a man called Ezekiel a vision. Now, my daughter often asked me to explain, what's a vision? <laughs> she has asked me that before. Where well, a vision, I think, is like a trance or spiritual dream where a person gets a glimpse of the supernatural. And in this vision that Ezekiel saw, uh, God took him in the spiritual world, I guess, to a, to a valley full of very dry human bones. And God placed Ezekiel there, and then he asked Ezekiel a question. Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel, I guess, must have been quite helpless, um, speechless for a moment if you're imagining this, because his answer was simply, Oh Lord, only you know. And then God said to Ezekiel, I guess to his surprise, God said to him, Ezekiel, preach the word of God to these dry bones. And when you preach to them, they will come alive. Imagine that. Preaching to a valley full of dry bones, like a stadium full of dry bones all over the place. Heaps and heaps. It's, it's a shocking demand, isn't it? But Ezekiel obeyed God's command. And as he started to preach to the dry bones, there was a great sound in the valley. The bones started moving, joining together, bone to bone. Sinews were forming. Then muscles on top of the bones. Well, next to the bones. Attaching the bones. You get the idea, right? And then skin stretched over the bones. And finally, full bodies of people were lying there in this valley. But to Ezekiel's shock, they had no breath in them. Just a valley now full of dead corpses. What a horrific sight when you think about it. You know, as I've often wondered, I've often wondered to myself, what was worse to Ezekiel? The pile of dry bones that he saw at first, or the people now lying in front of him, lifeless, without breath. I guess Ezekiel didn't wonder for long because the Bible tells us that God then taught Ezekiel to call on the breath of life to enter the bodies on the authority of the Lord God. He wasn't really commanding the breath of life. He was asking the breath of life on the request of God. And suddenly, as Ezekiel did that, suddenly the valley became alive. The people were now living and breathing. And the Bible says they were like a great army. And then God told Ezekiel to tell this vision to the exiles in Babylon to encourage them that one day God will restore them back to Israel and he's going to do much more than that. 
that the vision of, the, of, of Ezekiel saw is, is known as the vision of the valley of dry bones. And it is found in Ezekiel 37. It is one of the many passages in the Bible that teaches us that God is the restorer of his people. God delights in restoring his people. And throughout the Bible, we see God restoring the nation of Israel. Not just the nation of Israel when they fall, but he restores the individuals within the nation. In different ways. We, we know the story of, of, of Jacob's restoration, Job's restoration, Samson, David. The list is endless of the individuals God restores. And when we move to the New Testament, when God enters the world in the person of Jesus, he comes as a restorer. Jesus is healing the sick, raising the dead. He's actually restoring even the disciples that fall, like Peter. And later on in Acts, we see God restoring Mark, John Mark, when he falls. In fact, when you think about the story of the Bible, it is really a story of how God restores in Jesus those whom he chose to be his people before he created the universe. You see, when God creates the world, it is perfect, isn't it? And then man sins against God. But God already has a plan. What does he do? He, he selects Abraham as a vehicle to restore humanity back to himself. And that, that story works its way through the Bible, and it culminates in God himself entering the world as a human being in the person of Jesus, who then dies on the cross to restore back to God anyone who trusts in him. But the, the cross is the middle of the plan. Because when we skip to the end of the Bible, the final book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, Revelation, what do we see? We see Jesus is coming to make the world new again, to restore it even better than it was before. But not everyone makes this new world that Jesus restores. In fact, it is only for the people whom God originally chose before the foundation of the world. So the whole story of the Bible really is a restoration plan of God. It is how God restores his people in Christ for his glory and for our good. That's the summary of the Bible. Now, today we are in Psalm 126, which we would say is a summary of the Bible. Because this psalm also teaches us that God is restoring his people. And we are going to look at this psalm in two messages. Today we are looking at verse 1 to 4. And in two weeks' time, because next week Brother Ola will be preaching to us from James. Uh, in two weeks' time, we will come back and finish by looking a bit at verse 3 to verse, uh, to the verse 6. So then we look at verse 1 to 4 to really learn about the restoration that God brings to his people. And the first truth I just want us to see from these verses, that the truth that they are teaching us, and it's in front of your outline at the back. The, the first thing we learn here is that we need ongoing restoration. We need ongoing restoration. I don't know if you're familiar with the singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson. But Andrew Peterson, in his, one of my favorite uh, singer -song, Christian singer-songwriters, in his song, The Last Frontier, 
Uh, he pictures a hopeless situation where he has fallen in a pit, right? And then the song says this. It says this. My heart is black as coal. It has been mined and there is no gold. It's so dark in there, but I don't care. I will lay down in this empty hole where my heart is as black as coal. There is nowhere left to go from here. I have fallen past the last frontier. And those words, are, I think, are a good description of the situation the Israelites found themselves in when they were led into captivity in Babylon, just before Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones. Israel had fallen past, we might say, the last frontier. They had seriously backslidden from God. They had been worshipping the, the idols of the land. The God had sent them prophet after prophet. Many they killed of the prophets. Some they just didn't have time for. Even to the very end, Jeremiah was prophesying before they were led into exile. And they were not interested. They only lived for themselves. And so as to discipline them, God drove them out of the land into captivity in Babylon. And as part of God's discipline, everything they had relied on was taken from them. The temple in Jerusalem was ripped apart, top to bottom. And that captivity lasted for 70 years. For those 70 years, it seemed like it was a new normal. That this was a new normal for Israel. This was the end for Israel. But to their surprise, the same God who gave Ezekiel that vision of the dry bones kept his promise. The same God who told Jeremiah that they'll only be there for 70 years and they'll be returned. They were returned right on the mark. God kept his promise. He returned them from exile. And we read about this restoration in the books of Ezra, the books of Nehemiah, the books of Agai. And in Psalm 126, which we're looking at this morning, the people have already returned from exile. Perhaps they've just been from exile for a number of years, a couple of, maybe two decades or so. They are now living back in the land. And we think the temple has been rebuilt, right? And and perhaps the walls of Jerusalem uh, are just being finished. They are already there. And in verse 1 to 3, they are remembering how it felt like when God restored them from that hopeless situation in Babylon. Please look with me at verse 1 to 3 there of Psalm 126. It says this, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, Zion is just another shorthand for for Jerusalem, which which is a shorthand for the nation as a whole. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The people are saying, look, we once lost all we had. Then God restored us back into the land. He brought us back from foreign captivity. And the most important thing that you need to see when they say when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, they are not just talking about a physical restoration. It was, a, it was fundamentally a spiritual restoration. 
Because when they came back, the Lord raised new leaders, as I said. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and these other guys, right? And they worked to restore the people, to rebuild the temple. If you like, God reversed their spiritual backsliding. And they were now people of joy. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. They were excited about what God had done for them. Because God had blessed them with his fresh power. They, 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 they had a new revival in the nation, we might say. But then, when we read on to verse 4, what do we see? When you read verse 4. In verse 4, they are praying now. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. We'll explore that verse next week in a bit more detail. But the point is, as they are living now in the land, they are facing new challenges. They need God to bless them afresh with his power. They are now longing for a new revival. And what Israel here is reminding us is this. It's an important point we often forget. It is this. People of God always need revival. They always need ongoing revitalization. They always need ongoing renewal. This was true for Israel, and it is true for us today in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true for you in your life. You always need ongoing restoration. Listen, if you have repented of your sin and surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God has breathed new life into you. You are like those dry bones in the valley, but God, through the work of His Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, has brought you to new life. You are alive now. You're not just a corpse, lifeless. No, you are a living being. You have eternal life. Which means that the eternal God now lives in you and you live in God. You are in union with God. We say you have colonia with God. You have been restored forever in Jesus. But even though you are eternally restored to God, you still need ongoing restoration. We need ongoing restoration because sometimes we backslide in our devotion to God. Our spiritual life starts deteriorating. We lose our zeal. Things that excited us now makes us don't. They feel boring to our ears. We have no devotion for Jesus as we used to have. We have become caught in things of the Lord. We let ourselves go. It's a bit like in marriage, isn't it? Somebody gets married, they're exciting, and it's all great, great, great in marriage. Then over time, we, we let ourselves go, don't we? We let ourselves go. The husband doesn't put in as much effort as he used to do when he was wooing the wife at the beginning. It just now costs along, and of course that's the criticism us men make. I think we can raise our hand today given that it's Mothering Sunday, just for today, right? But it happens, doesn't it? It happens in our marriages, and it happens in our relationship with the Lord. We are still married to God, but sin ruins our marriage. It gets in the way because we are self sinners living in a world of sin and Satan is constantly on our back. So we need ongoing renewal from God. 
And of course, most of us know this, right? We know this. If you're a Christian, you know you need ongoing revival. The problem is that many of us don't take that seriously. Many of us think it's just fine to be like that. It's just fine to coast along in our life with God. We don't sense the depth of our need. And because we don't sense the depth of our need, we are not being revived as God desires. Look, the patient cannot receive treatment from the doctor if they are refusing to accept that they have a problem that needs urgent treatment. In the same way, God is sovereign, yes. God is willing to revive your life with him. But he's not going to do it until you accept that your life is deteriorating. In fact, the first thing God does before he revives us is that he places a deep burden in our heart to see the plight of our condition. And so the first thing we must do this morning is to seriously, all of us, look at ourselves, look at our work with God, and ask ourselves, am I spiritually deteriorating? You ask, Chola, how do I do that? Where should I start? Well, I think, I think you should ask yourself these five questions. You should ask yourself these five questions which will help you get a sense whether you're drifting from God and need to be revived. Question number one. Is your prayer life dying? Before you loved praying, you spent a lot of time being alone with Jesus. You poured out your heart out to him. Has that changed? Do you find yourself strangely with little time to pray as you once did? Do you find yourself increasingly making decisions without a sustained time of prayer? You just make them off the whim. Are you afraid to pray about some of the decisions? Are you finding yourself increasingly afraid to pray about some of your decisions? That's question number one. Are you, is your prayer life dying? Question number two. Are you spending less time with your Bible? In the past, you could not open your Bible. You could not, you could not open your Bible only for a minute. You used to be there. You used to enjoy to pour over the verses. You had time to study it. The Bible excited you a lot. The preaching of the word excited you. When the preacher was preaching, you were like, I've got to listen to this. Has that changed? Do you find yourself going two days without spending even one hour alone with God to hear his voice? Has the voice of the master become increasingly an issue to you? Is the preaching of the word something you need to be somehow compelled to, to listen rather than something you long for to listen? Are you declining in listening to the word of God? That's question number two. Question number three. Are you becoming ardent to sin? Are you becoming ardent? Is your heart hardening to sin? In the past, you were at war with, against sin. 
You trembled at the very thought of sinning against the Savior who died for you. But now do you find yourself increasingly entertaining sinful thoughts? Are you finding yourself refusing to obey God immediately when he commands you? Do you find yourself debating with God whether this is an area I need to obey him in? Do you find yourself with little fear of being in a situation where you are being tempted? Do you find yourself more reckless about things and situations that will make you sin? You're finding a justification of being in a sinful situation. Is there an increasing gap, and this is quite important, is there an increasing gap between the person we see on Sunday and the person that is out there at the six days of the week? Is there this growing gap? That's the third question. Are you becoming ardent to sin? Is your heart hardening to sin? The fourth question is this. Is your love for other followers of Jesus getting cold? Are you finding yourself increasingly distant from other believers in the fellowship? Are you finding yourself making less effort to be in their lives and them to be in yours? Are you becoming more unwilling to forgive small offenses? Are you increasingly finding it difficult to set aside your desires for others? General human desires. Are you increasingly allowing small disagreements to grow into large disagreements? Are you increasingly tolerating unforgiveness, bitterness towards others? You are no longer working as hard as you used to to cut sin at the roots. Sin that corrupts your relationship with other believers. Is your love for other followers of Jesus getting cold? That's the fourth question. Now, we can go on, but just give you one more question you could ask yourself. Question number five. Are you becoming less bothered about Jesus being honored? Do you find yourself increasingly turning a blind eye to those who shame the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you find yourself increasingly ashamed of Jesus? Do you find yourself increasingly unable to talk to people in your life about their need for Jesus? These are just five questions. And I would say, of course there are sub-questions, but you get the idea, right? There are five questions. And I would say, if the answer to any of these questions is yes, then you need to go to the Lord agently this morning. You need to level with your Savior. You need to level with your God. You need to tell him, Lord, I have sinned corruptly before you, and I ask that, Lord, you would change me afresh, that you would revive me. Oh, there's no shame in going to those we love. To tell them we want to love them more, is there? Why more, friends, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord of the elect, the one who left the glories of heaven for you? Go to him this morning. Tell him, Lord, I accept I am drifting. And I am deeply sorry for neglecting my relationship with you. I want you to restore me afresh. 
Friends, you need to repent for yourself, first and foremost. Because if you continue drifting, you are wounding your life. A cold spiritual life only leads to pain in our lives. There is no healing apart from the hand of Christ. And if you span fellowship with the hand of Christ, you are wounding yourself. Because a cold spiritual life, if you are truly born again, will result in even more deep and painful correction. This is a lesson we learned from Israel. They backslid and backslid and backslid and backslid, and they ended up in exile. Drifting from God as brings us no happiness. It only makes us inwardly to experience deadness rather than life. More false peace than real peace. It always brings us deep wounds in our lives. You need to repent for yourself. And you need to repent for the people you love. The people you love. If you're a parent, you need to repent from your spiritual coldness because it can lead your precious children into sin and deep apostasy. A bad fruit rots other fruit around it. Bad company corrupts good morals. Your children need a godly parent, not a cheerleader for Satan. And this is especially so for mothers today, isn't it? God has given you this unique role in the home. You've got to get yourself right with God. You've got to ask him to change you, revive you afresh. But perhaps even more important for fathers. Because in the home, God has designed it. Everything flows from the fathers. Unique responsibility for us, isn't there? To be right with God, to be revived by God. So do it for yourself. Do it for those you love. And above all, do it for the Jesus you love. The Lord of the elect. The one who bled and died on that cross for you. There is no charm in sin, says Shannok, that cannot be overcome by that ravishing love which bubbles up from every drop of the Redeemer's blood. Can we, with serious thoughts about the death of Christ, allow ourselves to grow cold towards him? Can we sin against his infinite tenderness? How can we, with a straight face, allow ourselves to live a cold spiritual life towards a Savior who has shown us such compassion, such grace, such love? Can we, beloved, I ask you this morning with me, can we, beloved, really look at Jesus hanging there on that cross, delivering us from hell, and then start drifting back into the road that leads to hell? It's not possible. It shouldn't be. So this morning, if we know this Savior, let us ask ourselves those five questions afresh. And let us repent for our Lord, for, our, for the people we love, and for ourselves. Let us come before him, admit we are drifting, be serious about it, and let us ask him to revive us.
And as he revives you as an individual, he begins to revive his church. He begins to revive this neighborhood. He begins to revive the nation. God is very willing, as we see in Ezekiel's vision, to revive even the driest of bones. He is committed to revive us. Why? Because we are his people. And that is the second observation we learn here. The first observation, I spend a bit of time on that, is that we need ongoing restoration. The second thing is that we can be confident God will restore us. Why? Because God is committed to restoring us. That's the second truth. God is committed to restoring his people because our spiritual condition affects his reputation in the world. If our spiritual condition is good, it brings praise to our God. If it is bad, it brings ridicule to him by the unbelievers. This is one of the points the psalmist is making. Look at verse 1 to 3, I pray again. The psalmist says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Did you notice that in these verses, there are two groups of people, right? The first group are the people of God, the people of Israel. Israel knows the true God, not simply as Elohim, not simply as God our Creator. No, it knows God as the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. And the name there is used three times in brackets. That's how it knows him. It says, we know the true God. That's the first group. The second group here is everyone else in the world. The, the Bible uses the word, the, the, uh, the word here uh, to, uh, by the name of the nations. You see that in verse 2. Then they said among the nations. The nation is everyone really outside Israel. Those who do not have a committed relationship with God. Those who do not have a covenant relationship with God. That's the first thing you should notice, these two groups of people. The second thing to note is that when God returned his people, Israel, from exile, these nations which do not know God recognized that the true God has done this for Israel. Look at verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue... With shouts of joy, then they said among the nation, The Lord has done things, great things for them. The key phrase there is for them, something that Israel recognizes in verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The emphasis is on for them or, or for us. God restored Israel because He's for them. He's covenant people. Or as Israel says, he's for us. God restored Israel because he brought praise to him. Because Israel's condition affected how the nations responded to God. He did it for his glory, his reputation in the world, as their Lord and faithful husband. And what is true for Israel is true for us today. Because we are the people of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The new Israel of God. 
And our spiritual deterioration, backsliding, affects the reputation of our God in the world. Good. When we get married, right, how our spouse behaves affects how people see us. It's a fact. It's a fact. Trust me. Anyway, where I come from, that's what happens. I, I don't know what goes on here. But the point is that it does. Okay? If the other person is dilapidated and caring, our wider family circles blame us. Right? They blame us. It's just the way it is. They understand, actually, biblically, right, that we are one flesh now. Well, what is true in marriage is true in our relationship with the Lord. God is our loving husband in Jesus. And he is not content for us to remain in a dilapidated state because it affects his reputation. What loving husband would be content for the wife to look very shabby dilapidated? No, and vice versa, of course. Right? So in the same way, God... He's jealous for us in Christ. God knows, look, without God restoring and reviving us, the world cannot come to honor his son because his church looks shabby. And the world often even dishonors God on our account. So, beloved, God has every reason to respond to us to cry, when we cry out to him to restore us not only because he loves us, but also for he, because his glory is at stake. It's so fundamental we get that. Because there's no excuse why God should not revive us as individuals or as his church. Yes, it is his sovereign will who he revives, but he is committed and delighted in bringing revival in our lives. So the question for us is, are we willing to go to him? And, 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 and the subsidiary question to that is this. Do you love God enough to care about his glory? Do you love him enough to cry out, Lord, for your glory alone, change me, renew me, refresh me, revive me? That's the question, isn't it? I think it's obvious that those who truly know God and love God want their lives to bring glory to God. They want to be a billboard of his glory to an unbelieving world. I don't even think they need a sermon to convince them of that. They want the world to look at their lives and be able to confess, the Lord has done great things for him. The Lord has done great spiritual things for her. The Lord is at work in her life, changing her, making her more like Jesus. Maybe I should check it's Jesus, just to check. That, that is a Holy Spirit generated desire of a genuinely convert. And in fact, we could pause here for some of us to ask ourselves if there is no this desire to be re re restored, revived, do we really know our God? Do we really know Him? And I would say the answer is no. No. And so if there is even an inclination that none of this matters to us, this is just something we can hear on a Sunday and 
put it in the corner for the rest of the week. Oh, I hear what you're saying, but there are other things. Then we have a bigger issue. We have a big, big issue. You say, big, big problem. And we need to come before God and ask him to make us born again. We've got to start from there. To breathe new life. To be truly changed. But my prayer is that that's not where many of us are at. Where we're at is that we recognize that we need God to revive us for his glory. And so this morning we would come before God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and ask him to identify areas of our lives which are making this hard for us. And we would ask him to genuinely commit ourselves to, uh, to help us commit ourselves to him to obey everything commanded in his word. No shortcuts. No trying to fit Jesus in. No trying to be one shoe in, one shoe out. To be radical about our desire for the Lord to work in our lives. This moment, right here, right now, level with God. Tell him, Lord, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do with me as you please. We need to do that for his glory. But the other, final, the other reason we need to do it is we need to do it for our good, as I hinted before. And we see this particularly a specific good. We need to do this because restoration brings great joy in our lives. Restoration brings great joy in our lives. And that's the final point I just want to make from this passage. The first truth is that we need ongoing restoration. And we can go to God. Why? Because of the second point. God is committed to restoring us. Why should we then cry out to God? Well, it's for his glory, but also for it brings us great joy. It brings great joy. And that's the third point. Imagine a football team that is down 5-0 with 15 minutes to go, right? Left on the clock. And all of a sudden, the manager brings on a player who changes everything. And the passing is quicker. The boy is now being controlled. They still got 15 minutes. And then the goal starts coming. One, two, three, four, five, six. It sounds like basketball, doesn't it? It is six now. Six, five, the game is over. That's the stuff of legend, isn't it? It never really happens. I've never seen a game like that. Uh, perhaps Brother Ola has played in one where it's been changed like that. He's come on as a sub. Uh, I have to watch you on Friday to see what's going on there. But I've never seen that. Even at my... When I, was, when I used to play. Believe me, I, I did used to play. <laughs> when I was a number 10. I, I, it never used to happen like that, right? Uh, our brother, brother Fred probably would say, yeah, he's done it as well. But it's never happened to me, right? It's unbelievable. But that's what happened to Israel. That's how Israel felt. They were down 70 years down. Then God brought them back to their homeland. And they were over the moon. Look at this one to two. Then when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, who are like those who dream, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. They are saying this wonderful work of God brought so much joy to our hearts. We laughed out loud with joy and praise to God. All the sorrows we had experienced in exile had now been turned into joy. 
The whole community was united in joy and they thanked God. And even as they remember it now, if, many years after, in verse 3, they are saying even now, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. They are still glad about it. It was that sort of joy. Now, admittedly, not every restoration by God in our lives is intended to produce this dreamlike level of joy experienced by Israel. But don't miss the point. The point is that joy is always the fruit of God restoring us. Even in the middle of deep suffering we may be going through. Joy is always the fruit. You want joy, this is how to have it. And the reason why joy is the fruit is because the more we are revived by God, the more we repent and the more we turn to Him, God, we become more in touch with God, isn't it? And God is the fountain of all joy, as Horatius Bonner says. You see, beloved, look, the devil tempts us to backslide. What does he tell us when he tells us to backslide? He says to you, you'll be happier indulging that sin. You'll be happier with a little devotion in the church. You'll be happier just doing this and that. That's what makes you life happy. You'll be happy doing life on your terms. But beloved, we know how that works out. How do we know? Because Adam and Eve tried it. And we are still paying the cost. So we know that doesn't work. We know that we grow in experiencing joy only by growing deeper in our relationship with God. The true person is a person filled and shaped by God. In fact, by the way, this, this verses, verse 1 to verse 2, this restoration experience was in fact intended by God to point to a future restoration that was to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. It finds its complete fulfillment in Jesus himself. The Prince of Peace. The joy without end. And so we can only grow and experience joy the more we grow deeper with this person, this Jesus. The true happy person is a person filled and shaped by God. For you to be joyful in your life, Jesus must be your ultimate pleasure. You'll be most joyful in your life when you reach that point at which you say... I can find nowhere else. I can find no joy in anything else except in this Jesus. And so when we start drifting from God, we are drifting away from what? True happiness. And when we repent and surrender afresh to God, we start growing again in the joy of His restoration. More surrender, more joy. It's that simple. That's the biblical model. So the question for you today really is a strange question, isn't it? Do you want to be joyful? Of course you do. Do you want to grow in having that wonderful inner delight of God? Do you want God to fill you with himself? Do you want to have that joy that stays with you no matter how deep your suffering gets? Because you know God is there for you. Do you want that joy that flows from the knowledge that Christ has cancelled your sin by his blood and that all is now well with you and God? If you're trusting in Jesus, as I said, it is your new nature in Christ to want this joy. So why wait? Come before God. Examine your life this morning. Admit you need ongoing restoration. Tell the Lord you're tired of drifting. 
Repent of your drifting and ask him to revive you afresh. As we learned, he would do it because God cares about his reputation. He would do it for you because he's committed to you as his daughter or son in Christ. And you do it because he cares about your joy. He loves you and he wants to give you that joy. So come to him this morning. Amen.